Howdy, folks. Thanks for tuning in to another edition of TGC Midweek. Jacob and Michael back with you on the pod. Michael Novak. What's going on, man? It's We're been back. a while. We're back. Yes, we the are band back. band is back together. That's right. How you doing? I'm good. It, it, it was nice uh, being a spectator. Hey, did you listen in? Yeah, I did. It was it was uh, uh, great to hear from those three guys and Good. Uh, hear what they're all about. And so, well, I'll tell you, um, your job is harder than it <laughs> looks and sounds yeah. because uh, you got to have a lot of oomph uh, to you know carry carry the podcast. Yeah, you have to have enough oomph to make it sound. You know, you got to you know capture people, but then you have to have not too much oomph or or Guillermo gets on to you for for coming in too hot. So. Yeah. Well, you, you need to <laughs> come in hot. Dial it. I was kind of like, rides. welcome to TGC Midweek. Yeah, yeah. I, <laughs> and people were automatically asleep. <laughs> yeah, I thought I, I was ready for some kind of NPR outro. Yes, <laughs> I'm August Clementine. So, um, man, yeah, good to be good to be back on so the podcast. Good to have you back. So. And because you're back after a long break. It's only right that you kind of lead in with your boost and bummer since we haven't heard from yes, you sir. in a while. What are you boosting? What's a bummer? Yeah. So uh, the reason that I, I was out is that uh, we had an, a new baby a couple of weeks ago. This was mm. actually during the snowpocalypse. Ooh. Um, I think that Sunday or Monday is when it got real bad and the baby was born that Wednesday. So Right in the thick of it. Yeah, uh, that, yeah, that was a giant cluster. But um, so I think obviously the boost uh, would be um, my expanding progeny. Uh, the bummer <laughs> would be uh, my expanding progeny yeah. because <laughs> my house is just loud and chaotic and nothing is clean ever. And I think that's just gonna be my life for a couple of years. Sure. So yes. embrace the chaos. Embrace the chaos, but uh, that's right. both a good thing and uh, causes headaches. You're still able to play man to man. Yes, you know? that's that's right. Yeah, yeah. Maybe one day it'll be zone. Yeah, if we ever uh, cross that bridge into number three, that'll be that, that's going to be a big transition. You yeah. know, I I thought going from one child to two children would mean parenting gets twice as hard, but it gets like five times as hard. <laughs> <laughs> sure, because yeah. there were a lot of things that we could tag team that we can no longer tag team. Yeah, and uh, so it's been basically me and the oldest. Uh, you know, while while yeah. mom is taking care of the little one. The other hard hard part about it is that when the little one um, becomes uh, no longer. Right now, they're stationary. Yeah. If you put them in the middle of the bed, they're not going anywhere. That's right. Those were great great months. <laughs> yeah. Uh, when they start getting mobile, that that's a whole new um, whole new deal. Yeah. And and the age group between ours is not huge. And we did that on purpose, and we knew yeah. it'd be challenging. But golly, it's just the the oldest one is at that one and a half age where, you know, he wants things all the time, but he can't tell you what he wants and he mm. wants it right now. Yeah. And then he just loses it. So it's a good thing. They're cute. Yes. Good yes. Thing they're cute. Um, so consider having children, everyone. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Michael, let's continue with our Bible overview series. It's been a couple of weeks since we've been in here. Um, I think the last book of the new Testament that we covered was Galatians. Um, so let's continue now working through Paul's letters. And before we do, oh, that's let's right. Talk about we have the a question, question we got. Yeah, uh, this is that. Thank you because sure. uh, I always forget that. Yeah. So uh, pause, and we'll address a question that we received uh, from back when we were covering Romans. I had a great time during that conversation, but got this question in here on Romans five thirteen, and it says, "What does it mean that sin wasn't counted before the law?" Yeah, in Romans, uh, which the men and women are studying right now, uh, mm-hmm. 
in weekly Bible studies, and we're kind of in Romans chapter 5, or we were last week uh, as a church in Romans chapter 5, verse uh, 13, there was a question that came up about this particular verse, and the verse says this, In fact, sin was in the world before the law, but sin is not charged to a person's account when there is no law. And so Paul spends a lot of time talking about grace and law uh, in the beginning portions of uh, his letter to the Romans. And uh, he talks a lot about how the promise came with Abraham. Um, We are saved by faith, and Abraham is the model of that salvation by faith for us. But the thing is, the promise came 400 years before the law. Mm -hmm. And so we're people of promise, not people of law. Uh, And the question is, well... What was happening to those people before the law? Were they uh, sinful? Um, How was sin counted against them? And Paul's addressing this here, uh, saying sin was in the world before the law, but sin is not charged to a person's account when there is no law. Basically saying, ever since the fall in Genesis chapter 3, sin has existed. And we know that because the repercussions or the consequences of sin have been suffered by humanity, namely death itself. Mm -hmm spiritual and physical, uh, and then also just moral disintegration and disobedience. And so the effects uh, of sin have been felt even before the law was there. But sin was not charged or counted to a person's account um, uh, when there were, when there was no law. And so basically Paul's making the argument, sin was there, you know, because the consequences were there, but you couldn't recognize it. It wasn't counted to someone's account or credited to them until the law came along and we were able to actually recognize it and have it credited to us. Um, and so uh, another, another uh, place where he addresses this is Romans chapter 2. And he says uh, in Romans chapter 2, verse 12, all who sin without the law, uh, meaning Gentiles, mm-hmm. um, but then also those that lived before the law was given in Exodus chapter 20. So all who sin without the law will also perish without the law, and all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. And so here in Romans chapter 5, I think Paul is simply just trying to point out the fact that the effects of sin were there. We all suffered them pre-law, but now the law is here. It's a microscope on our behavior um, and on God's character and it actually reveals uh, more fully uh, who we're called to be and who God is in His perfect holiness. Um, and now sin is charged to a person's account in a way that it wasn't before. Um, not meaning um, this is hard. This is hard to parse yeah, because this is a tough one. I know what you're thinking and what I'm thinking. Yeah. The pushback to this is: Are you saying that sin wasn't charged? Yeah. Well, no. I'm saying more, I think, and Paul's saying that we weren't aware of it in the same way that we are now. Um, and that's how that's that's how that's what I take Paul to be um, discussing here. Um, I'd love to hear any thoughts you might have. Yeah, I, I, I think I just have more questions than thoughts here, because if you think of someone. um. I'm trying to think of the relationship between the law and the gospel in the patriarchal era. Okay, so this is before the law. So what Paul would be saying here was that sin was not counted. Um, But then how does that 
if if your sin isn't counted, like if your sin isn't counted to you, then your sin can't be. Um, then the gospel doesn't make any sense, right? The whole sure. purpose of the gospel is Abraham was saved by faith in the future Christ, yep. so that the great exchange would take place for Abraham, you know, sort yep. of in expectation. How does that work if your sin is not counted? Yeah. And I, I'm, I'm trying to articulate here that um, I think Paul is helping us understand in a human way mm-hmm. um, that the law exposes our sin in a way that we can say, okay, I now realize that my account is in deficit. Right. Before then, I might not have realized it, but it was still true. And so in verse 14... Paul says, nevertheless, uh, so I'll start with 13. In fact, sin was in the world before the law or before Moses, but sin is not charged to a person's account or accounted to someone when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who did not sin in the likeness of Adam's transgression. Um, And so here, Paul making the argument that the repercussions of sin being death reigned from Adam to Moses, we just were not yet aware uh, as fully as we could be um, of our transgression because the law was not yet in place. That's right. Yeah, I think um, when you said he's kind of speaking in human terms, I think that makes a lot of sense. In chapter 7, Paul says, I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Um, So I think that's we can kind of use that to help contextualize this. Rather yep. mysterious verse. Uh, my study Bible is conveniently uh, absent on verse thirteen. Hey, so there you <laughs> there's go. no commentary on yep. it. <laughs> Isn't that great? If you if you uh, are the author of the study study Bible, you just can skip verses. You're like, oh, that one's tough. Yeah, Let's that go one's to the a tough next one. one. Let's move. <laughs> Let's move on. Yeah, very good. Uh, well, folks, hope that is is helpful. If you've got questions on on Romans, uh, might give you some things to think through there. Uh, but Michael, let's continue our series here. Um, like I said, I think we left off with Galatians, and so we'll pick up this week with Ephesians. Um, and I think we can probably hit Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians tonight. So um, as I flip there, yep. Ephesians, all three of these book, books, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, pretty short, but uh, fairly packed, I would say, Um Ephesians starts with this uh, terrific riff in chapter one, um, where it talks about, uh, it says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Christ Jesus, according to the purposes of his will, et cetera, which is always just one of those Mm -hmm. sort of, uh, man, fist pump in the back pew kind of verses. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, it's definitely a go-to uh, passage for the doctrine of salvation, sure. and specifically the Reformed view mm-hmm. of the doctrine of salvation. And uh, it's interesting. Paul starts out with it; he just leads right in. And um, in Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians, uh, Paul is likely writing from a Roman prison cell uh, in sixty-two, sixty-three A.D. is how most folks would date these three letters. And he's got a lot of time on his hands. And you got to think he's fairly anxious, too, because he planted these churches, and they're fairly new. Mm -hmm. They're new congregations. And this is a movement that wasn't more than a few decades old, this gospel movement that was overtaking the Mediterranean basin. And so Paul, their leader, their their pastor um, in many ways, 
uh, was hundreds of miles away, and he was getting bits and pieces of news of how the churches were doing. And a lot of times he was hearing that they weren't doing well, uh, and other times he was hearing that heresy or false teaching was slipping into the churches that he had planted. And in many ways, the letters that he write have very specific purposes to combat some of those false mm-hmm. teachings uh, and to encourage uh, believers uh, to hold true to the gospel and the message that he taught when he was in their presence. Um, and he sent these letters uh, by way of couriers. And um, and we can talk about Ephesians first. Um, Paul actually spent a number of years in Ephesians, or Ephesus uh, is the city, um, uh, and Ephesians are the people. Um, but uh, you can read about uh, his time in Ephesus in Acts chapter 19. Uh, there you get the sense that he came in, he kind of set up camp, I think, for two to three years is what most people say. Um, he was there for two to three years, and in the course of his teaching, uh, he disrupted the economic activity of the city. And Ephesus was a fairly large city. Uh, it was a port city. Um, it was a wealthy city, but also, uh, um, just like today, um, although probably more so than today, there was a big, um, uh, what do you call it, socioeconomic gap mm-hmm. that people would have experienced in that world. The rich were really rich, and the poor were slaves. Mm-hmm. And uh, most of the folks in the city were likely um, some sort of slave class, I would imagine. Um, But anyway, one of the wealthier classes were silversmiths. And in Ephesus, there was – it was actually one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, um, uh, a temple to Artemis. And Artemis is the Greek god, I think, of the hunt or animals, Mm -hmm. um, known to be the daughter of Zeus. Um, I don't know who Zeus made Artemis with. (laughs) Um, maybe if, if you know if you know that, you can uh, send us an email. But all that to say, folks uh, in Ephesus, the silversmiths would craft idols out of silver for folks to have in their homes. And what does Paul come along and what's he teaching? I mean, overthrow the idols. Yeah, he's teaching that, you know, God is invisible. Um, I, he incarnated himself in Christ Jesus. He's in one place at one time. Um, idolatry is sinful. It's not the way that humans are meant to live. And and basically, he's disrupting uh, um, economic activity that would have made a group of people in Ephesus fairly wealthy. And what happens from there is the silversmiths get together and they start a riot. And uh, and they get Paul kicked out of town. Um, and uh, and so you can read about that in Acts chapter 19. It's It's an interesting read. Um, but, um, Paul planted this church, spent a number of years there, um, and he finally has to leave. And from Rome, he writes this in the main, uh, thrust of the book, I think we'd say, and it makes sense because Ephesus being a port city, it likely had, um, just a, a large conglomeration of different people living, uh, in that city. And one of the main points of this whole book is how do people who are different live together in the church of Christ. And Paul's specifically talking about Jew and Gentile in the book of Ephesians. Uh, these, these two groups of people, the dividing wall of hostility, he says at some point in the book, has been torn down in Christ. And now there's no longer Jew uh, or Gentile. We're all one in Christ Jesus. And he's basically encouraging the church to live as one. Um, and it's got ramifications for the church throughout history. Uh, because it was Jew and Gentile, you know, back in the first century, 
Um, it might be black and white, you know, in 18th century America. Mm-hmm. Uh, it might be wealthy and poor uh, in 21st century uh, Christian church. Um, it might be Democrat and Republican. Um, it could be, you know, you fill in the blank. Yeah. Um, South side and north side San Antonians. Um, what does it look like for the dividing wall of hostility to be torn down and not let anything come uh, between brothers and sisters in Christ? And so that's the main thrust of Ephesians um, as you just kind of look at the book from a 30,000-foot view. Um, but the other interesting thing about Ephesians, and we talked about this on Sunday morning and um, belabored the point a little bit on Sunday morning that in Paul's letters, you always see the indicative come before the imperative, meaning uh, what is true always comes before what to do. And there's not a better book in the New Testament, in my opinion, to see that because the first three chapters of Ephesians, Paul is basically telling the Ephesians what is true of them. This is what the gospel is. This is who you are in Christ. Let me teach you about the gospel. And then in uh, chapter uh, four, it starts with the word, therefore, Uh, in light of the three chapters that I just wrote you explaining all of the good things that you have in Christ. Now in chapters four, five, and six, I'm going to tell you how to live in response to those truths, to actually live into your true identity as someone who is in Christ. And so what is true comes before what to do. The indicative comes before the imperative, and you can't change that. Because if you change it, if the imperative comes before the indicative, it means I have to obey in order to receive the good things that God Mm -hmm. wants to give me. Instead, Paul says, you got the good things, now respond in obedience. Yeah. If you flip them around, you really lose the gospel altogether. Yes, absolutely. Um, To put this, just as you can see it, if you're looking at the text in chapter 2, verse 8, Paul says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's a gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. That's very indicative. This is something that has happened. Mm -hmm. Continuing in in chapter 2 is what you just talked about, where Paul is laying out that the Jew and Gentiles have become one community in Christ. So he says, but now, I'm looking at verse 13 here, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Mm -hmm. It's something that is an observable fact that has happened. Yep. And then going to chapter four, like you said, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Just a very clear sort of make sure we understand uh, make sure we all are working with the same facts here. Yep. And if we get this wrong, then nothing else matters. Then we can start talking about, you know, what the implications might be. Yes. So often I see people talking about the implications of the gospel as though it were the gospel itself. Mm-hmm. And this is kind of my, my, my bugaboo. I mean, there's, there's a lot of things that are implications of the gospel um, that could also be implications of you know, whatever the latest best-selling help, sure. self-help book at Barnes & Noble is. Yep. So you have to get the gospel right, and then that motivates all the indi- yep. uh, all the imperatives that come after it. That's all a great point. You know, I once had, um, I don't know who said this, I've heard it a number of different places, but um, if you go to a Christian church and hear the pastor preach a sermon, and the sermon makes sense without Jesus, mm, yeah, it's not a real Christian sermon. Right. It's not a gospel-centered sermon. And you're kind of hitting on that. Like there's there's a lot of places you can go to hear the imperatives and you mm-hmm. don't really need Jesus for any of That's it. That's right. 
Um, and it's a great point. Yeah. Great point. Yeah. I've been reading a, a, a book. It's got, it's a book that's actually about a hundred years old now called, um, Christianity and liberalism. Hmm. Um, Jay Gresham, Masham, Gr- oh, yeah. Jay Gresham, Machen. Yeah. That's a, that his name is just a yeah. to- like a tongue twister. <laughs> I can never get it out without sounding like Joe Biden, but, uh, <laughs> that one was free. It's a bunch of malarkey. <laughs> it's a bunch of malarkey. Um, but he makes this point in that, in this book a, a lot that, um, Certain scholars at, at his time that he's sort of arguing against were focusing what he said on the ethics of Jesus, and by doing so, were really abandoning all of Jesus altogether hmm. because the ethics could have been like they didn't they they made sense without Jesus. To use sure. Words. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Um, you know the other interesting thing about Ephesians too is you get um, there's two passages in here that kind of stand out to me that I've come back to more often than others, uh, just in terms of living the Christian life. The first being in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 uh, to the end of the chapter, uh, where Paul talks about wives and husbands. And um, it's just the classic passage in the New Testament about what it looks like for uh, husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church, and wives to respect their husbands, to submit to their husbands just as um, Christ submits to his Father. Um, the interesting thing that I always like to point out is before uh, Paul talks about wives submitting to their husbands in verse 21, Paul talks about submitting to one another. Mm-hmm. And so that verse is normally left out uh, when we talk about submission, but submission is not a bad word. Um, we're called to submit to one another. Um, and, you know, wives get the opportunity uh, or uh, the calling to submit in a special way. Um, but it's not a negative thing. It's, right. it's a positive thing, just like Christ um, submitted and received lots of glory and honor for that submission in order to accomplish our salvation. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, the passage of wives and husbands jumps out um, along with Ephesians chapter 5, uh, verse 22 to 33, where Paul talks about wives and husbands, the other place that I'd normally go. Uh, and maybe premarital counseling or when I'm talking about marriage with folks, it's Genesis chapter 2, uh, where Adam and Eve are created and uh, they leave their mother and father and become one flesh with one another. And so those are really the two kind of pinnacle passages in the scriptures that talk about marriage. Um, the other one that stands out from Ephesians is Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 uh, through 20, where Paul talks about spiritual warfare and the armor of God. And that one's interesting because... We don't normally think about the spiritual aspect of our lives and that there's things happening behind the scenes, so to speak, that we can't see. There are spiritual forces at work uh, that don't want to see the gospel uh, progress in this world um, that are set against God's goodness and truth and beauty uh, and the renewal that he wants to bring to our lives. And Paul just kind of assumes that that's true. Uh, and, you know, it's almost like if you were reading it and you didn't know anything about spiritual forces, you know, Ephesians chapter 6, beginning in verse 10, might stop you in your tracks. Yeah. Well, what is he talking about? Um, but uh, he's a man that's convinced uh, that there's more to life than what we can see with our eyes. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, the physical is just very obvious to us. We, we've got to feed our bodies food or mm-hmm. we're going to notice it. Um, if our bodies get sick, we're going to suffer the consequences. Um, and uh, we think about the physical all the time, 
Uh, but very rarely are we thinking about the spiritual, which is just as real and needs just as much attention from us in order for that aspect to be healthy and growing in our lives. Sure. I, I've always loved this passage just because it's it's interesting. And um, I think the word that theolo- theologians would use to describe a passage like this is that it's really cool. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Uh, I've always thought that there were very specific reasons why Paul chose specific pieces of armor with the uh, descriptors that mm. he that he uses. And I've always – the one that always confused me but I think makes a lot more sense now that I'm older is uh, as shoes for your feet having the readiness given by the gospel of peace. So for the other ones, it kind of seems a little bit obvious. The breastplate of righteousness, that sounds – I mean, it just kind of sounds poetic, but it's like the righteousness of Christ sort of protecting mm. our vital organs, yeah. for lack of a better uh, phrase. But um, this thing about the gospel being the shoes for our feet, I think is, like we just talked about with the indicative and imperative, it's the thing that gets us to move. Yep. You know, it's the thing that with, without anything else, without that, nothing else kind of really matters because it's what causes you to move from place to place. Yeah. And it reminds me in Isaiah when he says, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Yeah. Um, an interesting story there. I once had a friend who um, who who was influential in uh, proclaiming Christ to somebody, and uh, influential in that man's conversion. And the man who was converted gave uh, a book to my friend, and in the, in the cover of the book, he just wrote. You have beautiful feet, (laughs) but he meant it, you know, you're the one who brought me good news. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news? And, uh, you have beautiful feet, Jacob. (laughs) There's ain't ain't nothing beautiful about a man's feet. Like doesn't matter. Dude's feet are pasty and hairy and just no. Uh, Poetic, poetic. Yes. (laughs) Oh man. Um, on that note, <laughs> yeah. Any, any more thoughts on Ephesians? Uh, there's a lot of this sort of household code stuff we could talk a lot more about. We could maybe do a U-turn when we get to uh, Colossians because sort of the same list is enumerated yeah. again. Yep. Um, but let's move on then to Philippians. Uh, we're going through this on Sunday mornings as a church. Um, so you're the the expert, as it were, on on uh, Philippians. Um, Hopefully, we're all experts by now. <laughs> that's right. Uh, what can you tell us about this? Well, same. Uh, Paul's writing from Rome. Uh, you know, some folks make the argument that he's writing from Ephesus, but that's a minority opinion. Um, most folks uh, would say he's writing from Rome, 62, 63 AD, uh, to a Roman colony in northern Greece uh, known as Philippi. Can I ask you a question? Yep. You've made this point a couple of times in the sermons that Philippi was a Roman colony. Yep. And... Uh, because I live where I live. When I think colony, I think of like distant lands separated by an ocean. But yep. this is like in Greece, which was, isn't it? Isn't Philippi in, yeah. the, in yep. the Greece in area? Greece. Yep. So it's it's part Under of the Roman, Roman Empire, Roman, isn't it? Yeah, so what does Empire. it mean to be a colony? Um, well, I think that when folks uh, mention that Philippi is a colony, they're talking about a military kind of outpost, military um, city that was built up. Um, actually built up before Rome um, uh, came into being, uh, if I understand oh. correctly. Um, and um, it was uh, in such a place where battles were occurring. And once those battles ended, folks just kind of set up shop where they found themselves. Mm-hmm. And that happened to be in Philippi, Northern Greece, for a number of folks. Um, and so it was heavily... Um, 
made up of uh, former military uh, officers, I guess you would say, from mm-hmm. um, the Greek and the Roman military. Um, and uh, um, and so when we say colony, you're right. I mean, all of this would have been under the dominion of the Roman Empire. Um, but, but it was not as like a functioning city in the way that like Ephesus or um, some of these other cities that we've mentioned were. It was much more of like an outpost that served a specific purpose. Well, I think that folks would make the argument that Philippi looked a lot more like Rome than oh. Ephesus might have. Okay. Or, or that Colossae um, might have. Uh, and so in Philippi, uh, because you have uh, such a, a strong contingent of um, military officers, uh, they likely would have valued, like I mentioned uh, a few sermons ago, um, Roman architecture, Roman customs and ways of life, um, legal documents in uh, the Roman tongue of Latin. Um, and uh, they would have been trying to implement, they would have been trying to make Philippi a miniature Rome, gotcha. so to speak. Okay. Is how I've understood it in ways that maybe Ephesus or Corinth didn't. Yeah. Um, and so Philippi had a lot of national pride, you might say. Yeah. And they wanted to um, to see to see their city become uh, a miniature Rome and adopt its values and cultures, and um, and you know that helps if that's true. And um, from what I've read and studied, uh, you know, there's no reason for us to believe that it's not. Uh, then some of Paul's writings uh, make a little bit more sense, especially. Uh, when he talks about citizenship in heaven mm-hmm. uh, in Philippians chapter three, um, obviously it works well if that's true. Yeah, um, because uh, these Philippians would have known exactly what Paul was talking about. Their citizenship was Roman, but they were living in a colony outside of Rome. Yeah, um, is the way that uh, we put it. Um, just like I mean, you could say in Ephesus, uh, if you are a Roman citizen, um, you were living in. Um, uh, you know, a colony that was looking to be like Rome outside of Rome, I mm-hmm. think is the argument that's being made here. Um, and so um, anytime you've got a group of Romans somewhere, I guess you could make the argument there's a colony of Rome there. Mm-hmm. Um, just like anytime you have a group of Christians, um, you could say there's a colony of Christians, just like you'd have a colony of ants, I guess, a group of people together um, that are sharing um, values and culture and um, a specific uh, way forward and goal in their lives. Um, but they would have thought, so your point is that they would have thought of themselves uniquely as Roman citizens living in a foreign land, as it were. Yes. Whereas a citizen of, of uh, someone living in Corinth might have thought of themselves as um, a conquered Greek. Yes, or they 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 probably would have thought of themselves um, a little bit more in terms of I, I'm I'm a Greek, right? I'm a Hellenist, yeah. Um, where the flavor that the Philippians would have had is I'm a Roman, yeah. Um, and there th- I, there's a difference there in the first century. Yeah, I'm picking it up. It's a little bit hard to because, to draw categories around because it. what you got is you know Alexander the Great was recently on the scene yeah uh, 300 years before uh, the um, New Testament was written and so a lot of Greek 
cultures, customs were still in play. Uh, then you've got the Roman Empire uh, upon the scene. Um, and uh, if I understand correctly, this idea of um, kind of Hellenistic life is a mixture of, you know, the Greek history that they've yeah. always experienced with uh, some Roman influence yeah. coming on top of it. Well, the Romans were obsessed with the Greeks and basically just wanted to copy them. Sure. And so that was an easy cultural spread. And a melding of both. And yeah. what I understand from the Philippians is um, they were much more ready to align themselves with Roman yeah. culture and customs than Hellenistic culture and customs. Okay. I think I understand that distinction. So. Um, explain what you uh, what I, I interrupted. <laughs> Where are we? Yeah, yeah that's explain right. what I interrupted you about the the citizenship in heaven and why that is important. Oh no! Well, I was just saying that would have been important because the Philippians would have known exactly what Paul was talking about. Yeah. Like we are citizens of heaven, but we're living on earth. Mm-hmm. We are citizens of Rome, but we're living in Philippi. Yeah. Um, and so we have a home. We have a home city that mm-hmm. we're moving towards, and um, and. Yeah, that would have been that would just would have been an analogy that that that's why Paul that's why that's why uh, folks say Paul used that phraseology that argument because the Philippians would have uniquely understood yeah. and embraced what he was talking mm-hmm. about. Um, but you know, um, what's the theme of Philippians? You you hear me talk about it for the first three to five minutes every Sunday. Uh, probably getting old at this point, but joy. Mm-hmm. Um, joy explicitly is mentioned at least 16 times in the 14 chapters of the book. And um, and Paul is is talking about the fact that he's talking about joy is really um, surprising given the fact that he is in prison mm-hmm. um, apart from this church, uh, that the church itself is about to experience widespread systemic persecution. Circumstances are difficult. Life isn't easy. Um, and Paul's still talking about joy. And so uh, the reason he can do that uh, is because he's talking about joy that's located not in circumstances, not in um, our, our life's experience, but in Christ himself. Mm-hmm. And so he talks a lot about having joy in things like humility and community and suffering and perseverance. And, uh, and as I mentioned on Sunday mornings, we can find joy in those places because those are the places that Christ is most often found. Yeah. And what I mean by that is when we are exhibiting humility in our lives, we are like Christ. Uh, when we're experiencing perseverance through hard times, we're identifying with Christ in a unique way because, I mean, who hasn't? I mean, among everybody that's lived in the world, he's, he's experienced uh, perseverance and endurance in, through hard times. Um, especially given the fact that, you know, he's a creator that mm-hmm. took on um, a body and stepped into his creation uh, and uh, was just completely, you know, somebody that didn't have a place to lay down his head and uh, was rejected by those that he'd created uh, generally, but then also rejected by his own people that he'd mm-hmm. loved from the beginning. Um, and so um, joy, just a big um, <clears throat> theme here in the book of Philippians. Uh, it does not take on the indicative imperative um, uh, kind of scheme as much as um, Ephesians and Colossians does. Uh, you get a sense that he loved the Philippian church. It's a it's really a positive letter, as we've mentioned. Um, and if you had to pinpoint uh, one or two verses or passages from Philippians, uh, you'd probably pinpoint um, uh, Philippians chapter two, verses five through eleven. 
where it talks about how Jesus um, embraced humility and left his honor and his privileges in heaven in order to come down and take the form of a servant and become obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And even in my Bible here, you notice that it's uh, written um, in kind of a poetic uh, meter. Um, and a lot of folks uh, make the argument that this was an early hymn that the church would mm-hmm. have known or maybe a confession or a creed that would have been well known among the churches. And um, and so just a beautiful passage there highlighting Christ's humility in order that we might be saved. And then you get Paul's resume in Philippians chapter 3, which is another interesting passage. Uh, I just kind of love it because he's laying his cards on the table. He's like, you want to go out back, I'll go out back with you and we'll compare resumes and mine's going to blow yours out of the water. And he's talking specifically to a group known as the Judaizers who would have been trying to convince the Philippians that they needed Jesus plus something else. They needed Jesus plus circumcision primarily. And they needed Jesus plus to adopt certain Jewish customs. And Paul basically says, look, I adopted all the Jewish customs you could adopt. I attained far more than anyone else has obtained in the Jewish uh, religion. And I count all those things um, as nothing, as trash, as dung, um, in order that I might gain Christ. And just a beautiful passage that he's not relying on anything um, that he's done um, or anything that he's received uh, in life apart from Christ. Um, So Philippians 3, um, Paul's resume. Great passage. Yeah, probably one of my my favorites in Scripture and something that I think is so applicable, especially in a very Christianized sort of Bible Belt America. I think we could uh, take a lot from that there. Um, want to hit also Colossians tonight, and we're starting to get long on time. Um, other thoughts on Philippians? Obviously, no. uh, 4.13 is a popular verse that people put on letter jackets, yeah. uh, but unless you're putting that on your letter jacket from prison, uh, don't do it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, understand the context for that one. Yes. So, um, very good. Uh, so Colossians, uh, this is a small book that I think is packed with a ton of stuff. Uh, also kind of seems a little bit... Um, I don't know if odd or mysterious is the right word, but it's kind of hard to understand, you know, what the main thing is that Paul is trying to address. What is he trying to correct? Mm-hmm. I think there's some disagreement among scholars on what that might be. Um, but what can you tell us about this one? Yeah, Colossians, um, he's writing to a church that he's never visited. At least we don't get an account of him visiting in the book of Acts like we do him visiting the other churches, I don't believe. And uh, most folks believe that while Paul was in Ephesus, uh, there were visitors from Colossae who came um, to Ephesus, received the gospel message from Paul's mouth, and took it back uh, in order to start a new Jesus community there uh, in Colossae. Um, Colossae. Um, and um, uh, it's hard to know why Paul write the, wrote this book. Uh, originally, a lot of folks believed that he was writing um, against uh, what is known as Gnosticism, um, that, um, you know, the spiritual is good, the physical is bad. But uh, the more scholars uh, have learned about what Gnosticism actually was in the first century, it doesn't seem like that was his main concern at all. Um, and so now most folks kind of believe that uh, the other option was he was writing against Judaizers, which it doesn't really fit with the book either. 
Um, it seems like he's writing against some sort of Jewish sect that might be teaching a little bit of mystical yeah. kind of um, ideas, uh, specifically with regard to maybe fasting and um, and uh, listening to um, uh, you know more spiritual voices in their life, quote unquote. Yeah. Um, Holy days and angels. Angels and is like you know that. something that's mentioned uh, in this book, um, which leads you to believe that that. And that's why the Gnosticism thing was kind of compelling at first, because it's like, let's get above the plane mm-hmm, of the physical mm-hmm. and really think about the spiritual, kind of let's meditate, you know, the idea that we would say today. Um, but there's something happening that causes this uh, letter to be written. And I think the main theme of Colossians is the preeminence of Christ. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't need those other things. Um, Christ is the creator of all that we see. Um, he's the one seated at the right hand of God the Father. Um, and, um, and if we have him, we have enough and, uh, we don't need to be seeking these, um, extra spiritual experiences. I mean, it actually is a book that has a lot of practical application today, I Mm -hmm. think, in our culture. Um, we don't need to be speak, uh, seeking these extra spiritual, emotional experiences. We've got Christ. And one of the more beautiful passages here, and it's Colossians chapter 3, uh, verse 1, it says, So if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. And so this whole idea that, huh, it's kind of fun to think about it, I'm here, but in another sense, I'm not really here, I'm there. Yeah. Uh, my life is hidden with Christ. And so to become who I truly am uh, while I'm here, knowing that, you know, I also have an identity there is an interesting, uh, it's actually getting a little mystical. Maybe maybe Paul's going to write <laughs> me a letter later this week saying, stop it. No, but I think that goes with some of the things that Paul writes about in some of his other letters um, under the heading of union with Christ, like mm-hmm. our our true identity, the way that you said it, our life is hid with with Christ. And so to the extent that we try to be our authentic selves or whatever, um, that's what we should be, should be aspiring towards, understanding sort of the gospel message that's, that's saved us. That's what we should be aspiring towards. So it's not so much mystical as it is sort of a way of thinking about it, I suppose. Yeah. Um, he might be taking the mysticism away and saying, think about Christ. Yeah. Who's up in, if you want to get mystical, let's do it this way. Yeah. Potentially. You're not trying to get away from your life. Your life is there yes. up with Christ. Um, to the extent that you try to, uh, find self actualization, that's what it means. Yep. It means Christ. Yep. So, that's, and then, you know, the other passage that stands out here, and you mentioned it, uh, before we got on the air, I guess. Um, is Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. Uh, And in my Bible, again, you see it uh, as poetry. And, uh, you know, the centrality of Christ the the, um, might be another hymn that would have been known in the early church or um, a a confession that they confessed together, but basically talking about Christ being the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Everything was created by him, um, visible and invisible, thrones, dominions. Nothing was created that wasn't created by Christ. Yeah. And so just the preeminence of Christ being highlighted there. Um, and uh, we actually use that as a confession at Trinity Grace. We do. On it, Sunday mornings. It's one of my favorites. And if Paul's combating this sort of um, mysticism, whatever that might 
you know, mean in, in its specific context, but let's just kind of call it that. If Paul's combating this mysticism, I think, I think we can safely say that's what he's combating because this is his refutation against it. Like mm-hmm. all these other things that you're trying to make up because you think that Christ isn't sufficient. Let me explain to you how big Christ is. Not only is he the firstborn of the creation, but he's the firstborn of the dead, like beginning and end, right? Yep. It's, it's all Christ. So your, your insistence on Christ plus angels or Christ plus holy days or Christ plus a weird relationship with food that they might have been talking about is is silly because your understanding of Christ is too small because you don't really understand who he is. Yep, yep, absolutely. Um, and, you know, the other thing that you mentioned earlier to double back on is just um, the household codes yeah. that you see Paul sometimes mention. Specifically in Ephesians and Colossians is where you see them. And in my Bible, uh, in chapter 3 of Colossians, beginning in verse 18, you, you see Paul launch into these household codes. And the title above it in my Bible is Christ in Your Home. Mm-hmm. And he talks about wives and husbands, children and parents, slaves and masters, and just how the gospel is meant to infiltrate its way even to the most common mundane relationships of our life. Yeah, And um, it's just... It's interesting that Paul mentions these and gives a pretty good bit of real estate to talking about how we're supposed to live in our nuclear families. Mm-hmm. It's almost as though the family unit is pretty important. Yeah, that's right. And interesting. You got it right here in the scriptures, <laughs> so you can you can bank on it. Yeah. Well, very good. Um, final thoughts on on Colossians. You know, in, uh, I'll have a story. I, I worked in high school at my local church as kind of a, somebody that set up rooms and tore them down. And it was kind of an after, uh, after school type job where we'd go and work two or three hours. <coughs> and I worked with a bunch of my buddies. It was a lot of fun, seven twenty-five an hour, you know, minimum yeah. wage uh, type job, uh, enough to get gas and maybe a meal at Wendy's every once in a while. Uh, but we kind of started um, uh, goofing off a little bit. Uh, while we were working, we'd As clock in. That's yes. right. And we'd take a snack break, I remember. Mm-hmm. And the snack break was supposed to be 10 minutes, but it got to 20 minutes, then 30 minutes. And then we were playing ping pong for 40 <laughs> minutes. And I remember the pastor of the church, and it was a fairly large church, and you know we regarded him highly. Um, and uh, he was kind of intimidating to a 16-year-old at the time. And he called us into his office one day, and it was a very important meeting. And he had just gotten fed up with how we weren't working. And he went to Colossians uh, chapter three, verse twenty-one, and I, I remember he read it out loud. He's like, "Look at twenty-three. Look at verse chapter three, verse twenty-two. It says, do work, don't work only while being watched as people pleasers, <laughs> but work wholeheartedly, fearing the Lord.'" And he just kind of went on for ten or fifteen minutes, like, "Are you people pleasers? Or are you fearing the Lord?" <laughs> it's just one of those instances when I was sixteen that I won't forget from Colossians. Yeah. So, got a bad taste in my you mouth. Should have I guess. said, "Are we slaves? or Are you paying us?" That's right. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we are getting paid not well. Yeah, very good. Uh, well, we'll close it there for the evening, um, and and uh, continue on next week. I haven't looked ahead, so not sure what we're going to be tackling, but uh, it'll be juicy for sure. Uh, folks, if you've got questions, you can send them into questions at trinitygracesa.org, or you can text those questions anonymously to the number you'll find on the back of your Sunday morning bulletin, or it's also in the email that you'll get uh, on Fridays if you're signed up for the TGC emails. This has been TGC Midweek, and until next time, we'll see you later.